Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome, welcome back to Dallas. Thank you very much. It is great to be back in Dallas, and thank you, Hicks, for that great introduction. Uh, I feel like you know my life story now. Um, I am uh, actually in a transition from working journalism to authoring consultant, so I'm going to give you a lot of my opinions tonight, something that, as a working journalist, I refrained from doing, being kind of the old-school journalist, uh, thinking opinions were not to be mixed with reportage. And one reason I've made this transition is because I feel so strongly about uh, about Iraq, the Iraq war, how we need to end it, what the ingredients for a successful conclusion to this conflict are. Um, and also, I'm very interested in applying what I've learned in my 20 years of running around the messy corners of the world and covering these conflicts. I'm very interested in applying these um, to policy solutions and extracting the lessons that we need to learn from this, our biggest war since Vietnam. Um, and I, I don't mean that necessarily in a pejorative way. It's simply a fact. Um, our country has been engaged in the most substantial military uh, endeavor uh, since the Vietnam War. Uh, while we're in the process of ramping up in Afghanistan, I don't believe we're going to reach those levels, uh, certainly troop-wise. Um, the duration of the Afghanistan commitment has yet to be uh, seen. But we've had many long, hard years in Iraq. I've spent, I've been there every year. I've spent extended um, time on each visit. I never went for fewer than three weeks. My first trip over at the beginning of the war lasted three months. Uh, so I feel it's really important for me to try uh, to share with you, with anyone who cares to listen, what I've been able to uh, conclude from my analysis and reporting. Uh, it's, it's, um, we can save for the question and answer period how the lessons of Iraq may or may not apply to Afghanistan, Pakistan. That's a question that I'm asked a lot. But let me take uh, the time that I'm allotted here, uh, first of all, to just give you the big uh, picture of the arc of the war and critically because, of course, as a former reporter, I have to tell you some stories, and I think some of those stories about individuals there, um, not only General Petraeus, but individuals at echelons below him and very uh, embassy diplomatic corps working side by side with him and some of the key Iraqis who engineered all together an extraordinary turnaround. Um, I'll start with August 2006. I went there, been going, as I said, many times since 2003. By the summer of 06, we were on the brink of losing this war. Uh, Baghdad was in a ferocious bloodbath. The Shia militias were running rampant 
through the city, barricades everywhere. There was a campaign of ethnic cleansing going on. The Sunni population was being killed and or pushed out. Um, it was a very, very scary time. And what had happened, many people, and as you follow the news, uh, many people refer to the Samara Mosque bombing back in February 06 that had set off this new heightened level of violence. Uh, but uh, General Pete Corelli, who was at the time the three-star commander there, he said in his assessment, it wasn't that so much as the fact that the new Iraqi government had come into power, the um, government of Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki, and had not only turned a blind eye to these Shia militias, but actually actively abetted their movement out into the Sunni neighborhoods, um, the police and the various um, they were called facility protection services. The various armed guards of the ministries were actively uh, uh, working to conduct this campaign. Um, I had dinner with General Corelli on his, uh, at his quarters at Camp Victory, which is the largest uh, U.S. base there. And afterwards, we went out to his patio where he was smoking a cigarette, and he said, my wife is going to kill me if you tell her I'm, I'm smoking. But he, in fact, was pretty much chain-smoking in those days. Uh, the the uh, uh, troops were due to come out. Uh, General Casey was very committed to continuing a drawdown that had begun a few months before with the 1st Brigade coming out. And, and Corelli was very uh, uncomfortable at this, and he'd actually made the case um, uh, for not sending that 1st Brigade back home. He went again to uh, General Casey and said, we've got to keep the Striker Brigade here. And I'd actually just been up in Mosul where that Striker Brigade had packed up its big... Um, armored vehicles and was beginning to head out. Some of them had already flown back to Alaska. And it was a horrible decision. Um, General Fastabend, who is the operations uh, chief who actually had to sign the order, he had tears in his eyes when he said to me, Linda, I know I just signed some soldiers' death warrants. Um, so all this is very personal and very emotional for these uh, generals. They're very connected to the consequences of their actions. Um, so I, I paint that picture for you in the summer of 06 so that you have a sense of, of just how perilous the situation was. And as you all know now, it's well known, the decision was made by the end of the year to go with what is now known as the surge. 30,000 more troops were sent over to Iraq, and that was a decision made in Washington. Um, retired General Jack Keane played a big role in that decision. But I am very emphatic in correcting some of the accounts that are out there. The actual strategy that was resulted, that resulted, and, and that... Um, the, the strategy for the use of those extra troops, as well as the that strategy was made in Baghdad. It was not made in Washington, D.C. Um, and the credit for this goes primarily to David Petraeus, but he was among the first to share the credit with many people he drew together. Um, I had actually met Petraeus in his previous position when he uh, was overseeing the writing of the counterinsurgency manual. It was the first time in 20 years that the Army had revised that manual. Uh, it had been written previously during the Central American Wars, which was when I began uh, my career as a reporter. Um, 
he pulled together every expert that he could find, a multidisciplinary group, social scientists, yes, military people, but very critically, a broad spectrum of people. It included human rights activists. He invited a half dozen of us journalists out. We were all invited to spend three days critiquing the first draft of the manual. And the reason I tell you this story is that is very much the approach he took when he got to Baghdad. He gathered together a group of the smartest people he could find and let them work unmolested for three months to analyze the current state of the war. Uh, this w it was called the Joint Strategic Assessment Team. And you may think, gee, that's a heck of a lot of time to give people while Baghdad is burning. Uh, but what I learned from watching this is it is essential that we understand a problem. If you don't understand it correctly and in depth, you can't possibly come up with the right strategy. And what this group that was headed by a diplomat, David Pierce, and uh, now General H.R. McMaster, uh, who's quite a, a character, and I, I commend to you his uh, book about the Vietnam War, uh, quite a good piece of scholarship. They concluded after this study, and they had the courage to say that the war had become a civil war, which it had. Um, they also concluded, therefore, what was needed was a, a strategy that would accommodation among these warring factions. And that leads you down a quite different path than a strategy that says simply identify the enemy and kill it and conduct a war of maneuver. So a very different strategy evolved as a result of that initial study. Uh, the the uh, joint campaign plan that uh, Petraeus, together with Ambassador Crocker, fashioned set out as its primary goal achieving at all different levels some measure of political accommodation. Now, they did not pretend and they did not use the word reconciliation. In fact, people say in Arabic, there is no such word as reconciliation. But, but what Iraq does do is make deals. And as I've witnessed over the years, those deals can be very hard to broker, but they can be brokered. So if you sort of take the bizarre approach to politics, definitely deals can be had. And deals still need to be had, which I'll tell you uh, my, my thoughts in, in summary about the key steps between now and January and in general over the next 12 months uh, while we still have sufficient numbers of troops um, in place. Very quickly, 2003 to 2006, what do we do wrong? There were things that we did right, but they were episodic and they did not add up to a strategic change. So the very most important thing that I want to tell you is we didn't, it wasn't that we just discovered counterinsurgency overnight, but the principles of counterinsurgency were applied tactically and episodically and not strategically. Uh, there wasn't a game plan to use the military force there to produce the political outcomes that were needed to address the conflict. We disenfranchised the Sunni and former regime elements, as you all know, Decree 1 and 2, uh, uh, quite a mistake in retrospect because those individuals got the message that they had no place in the new Iraq. Uh, there might have been an insurgency in any case, but those decrees guaranteed it. We then enfranchised a Shia Islamist minority, and I'm now convinced that actually the majority of the Shia population probably does not want an Islamist religious theocratic government. Uh, Iraq is a much more secular country, uh, much more uh, non-sectarian than we um, 
painted it to be and that many of our decisions led it to be. We enshrined these people in power. They, we allowed them to write a constitution that favored their interest, a constitution, by the way, that still has to be uh, revised. And we failed to see the gathering Shia threat. Um, and partly that was because we did not have a lot of troops in the south and in the east. There were special forces out there, and they were reporting the gathering of these Shia militias and the arming of them by Iran, uh, but, but the overwhelming focus was on the Sunni side of the threat. And unfortunately, a lot of our uh, tactics ended up treating the Sunni population as the enemy. And of course, as you know, this is uh, a recipe for uh, failure. Um, we did not have the kind of fine-grained that was developed. I will talk to you in a minute about what I see as the key change, but one of the changes that made a big difference was the introduction of biometric registry. Um, it's they call it the BATS Hive system, and it looks like a Polaroid camera, and they take a retina scan. They take the picture of, mostly it was young males, those who were the suspected insurgents in the neighborhoods where there was the most violence. So they would get fingerprints, photograph, a retina scan, and a photograph, and enter this into a computerized registry. So for the first time in the Iraq war, you actually had a shareable database of those most likely insurgents. And what that led to was more precise targeting of those who were the irreconcilable insurgents. Uh, and this was a precise targeting uh, data. You're going to kick in the door of the same house three times, alienate that family that has nothing to do with the insurgency, and that is the formula for failure. Far more damage than uh, the, the killing and capture of a correct uh, uh, and accurately identified insurgent is, is killing or capturing the wrong person because you've now turned his entire family against you. The main game changer was the outreach to the Sunni insurgency and the Sunni supporters of that insurgency. Uh, this uh, overture, as many uh, people has, have pointed out, including my friend Bing West, who's written a lot about uh, Anbar, the western part of Iraq, there had been uh, numerous attempts to recruit Ambari tribes to fight against the Al-Qaeda in Iraq insurgency. That Al-Qaeda in Iraq insurgency is the name that was given to that um, religious-inspired jihadist extremist Sunni insurgency. The bulk of the Iraqi insurgency was a nationalist, more secular or very secular uh, component of the population that made common cause with the much smaller al-Qaeda in Iraq, which included uh, foreign um, elements. Uh, so what, and understood a lot of this in part because of his tour in Mosul. That was his first tour in Iraq. Uh, he was a, 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 a mosaic, and the uh, Mosul itself was the, of the um, Sunni, uh, largely Sunni army and uh, the Sunni officer corps uh, and the Ba'athist party. So he understood very quickly that, that uh, these people were uh, consequential. He opposed the de-Ba'athification decree. He argued with Bremer about it, but it became policy, and that was one of the things that set the stage uh, for the unraveling in uh, Mosul after he um, left. So I'm going to uh, give you quick snapshots of what happened at various echelons during the 2007-2008 uh, period. 
um, Petraeus, uh, I, I will, I hope you will see through some of these anecdotes the kind of uh, character he is. Um, when I started my uh, research, one of the people who knows him well and was a co-author of the counterinsurgency manual said, don't underestimate the antipathy to Petraeus among his fellow army officers uh, because he is seen as someone who is climbing the career ladder, wants political at uh, press attention and so forth. But what I came to see was he's a man who will do what he thinks is the right thing and he really doesn't care what toes he steps on. And of course that can rub people the wrong way. He also is very open with the press but it's grounded in a view of these conflicts as being largely shaped by the information um, environment. Uh, he is trying to explain to the home audience what is going on in Iraq. You, you can see him now giving speeches about Pakistan and Afghanistan. He believes that it's very important to communicate constantly uh, with his diagnosis of the conflict and what they're trying to do. Uh, when I uh, first sat in on his the battlefield update assessments, the morning buas they're called, uh, I could see this, these personality traits coming out in spades. Uh, he would stop every few slides. There were these giant plasma screens, and the staffers would brief what was going on, not only on the military front, but they would say how many barrels of oil had been pumped in the last 24 hours, what electricity uh, flow was in what cities, just all kinds of detailed information. And he would say, wait a minute, wait a minute. What happened to Tower 57? Why hasn't the electricity uh, been restored in that area? Why don't you get any? And he would demand answers. He would challenge the briefers. And every day he would come back to Tower 57. Uh, and you clearly got the message that this was a problem that had to be solved or you were going to hear about it every day from him. Uh, and they did eventually get Tower 57 back online. It was in an area uh, that was under constant insurgent attack. Um, and he even one day when I was sitting in on the buoys, he said, uh, Saudi was his translator whom, who became a very close advisor to him. He said, uh, call our Sadr friends, because he had back channel contacts with the Shia Sadr militia and, and Sadr himself. He said, tell them if they do not get away from Tower 57, I'm going to send the Iraqi Special Operations Forces after them. <laughs> and, and so you can see very quickly, this is a general that has no compunction about wading into politics if he thinks it's going to get the job done. Um, his other... Uh, so he, he led through the daily briefings. He led by getting out in the field. And on these battlefield circulations, as they were called, he would always bring some Iraqi along. Often it would be an Iraqi parliamentarian. Uh, and that parliamentarian or a minister, let's say the, the uh, Dora, he, he would take uh, the electricity uh, officials, uh, ministry officials down to Dora and say, why are you not providing service to this Sunni area? Uh, what about the work that needs to be done here? And he would literally hold their feet to the fire and ask for answers. With the parliamentarians, he would ask for votes. He would say, you need to vote for this debathification legislation. We need to get the, you know. So he was very open about trying to pull the national political levers together to produce these compromises among the various factions. He never argued with Prime Minister Maliki in public, uh, but they did behind closed doors. And he was very passionate, especially in the spring of 07, where some of the most horrific violence occurred. Um, and, and he would have very strong, he'd, he would not use the word arguments, but 
I would. Uh, very strong arguments behind closed doors saying, look, my men are dying out there. You need to do your part. You need to do uh, uh, pull together this coalition to pass some of these laws and to take a stand against some of these sectarian influences. Uh, at, at echelons below that, uh, he would get the battalion commanders to come out and run with him at Camp Victory, uh, where his quarters were, and while they were on their uh, jogs, this was usually during uh, the weekends, he would say, I, I want you to reach out to these uh, insurgent groups. I want you to reach out to the local imams. I want you to reach out to the supporters of the insurgency and see if they're ready to come over in from the cold, come over on our side. Uh, and he gave that order in a commander's conference on June 2nd while a battle was underway in a neighborhood called Amaria. And in that case, Sunni nationalist insurgent named Abu Abid, and there's a chapter on this in the book, he had gathered together a bunch of fighters and independently launched an attack against the al-Qaeda in Iraq faction in that neighborhood. And that neighborhood was one of the prime bomb factories of Baghdad at that point. Um, and he took on this battle on his own. Well, he soon ran into trouble, and he called Dale Keel, who was the battalion commander for that neighborhood. Uh, he called him... He first called a, um, the uh, Sheikh Khalid, who was the imam of one of the local mosques, and he said, we're going to have to ask for the Americans' help. Sheikh Khalid then called Dale Keel and said, stand by for a call from this guy. So he was the conduit. Um, and uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Keel sent units down uh, to help them, a striker unit and some of his own 1-5 uh, cav uh, regiment folks down to help them out of that battle. And then from there on, they partnered. And I got to uh, see uh, Abu Abid many times. His wife, uh, Hulida, I came to know uh, quite well. And, and she was convinced that he was going to be murdered at any point. And in fact, has now they have now gone to live in uh, Jordan, um, which, which is unfortunate because he's uh, someone who could form part of the new uh, secular political leadership representing the Sunnis. But anyway, this was going on. Amaria was the first neighborhood to flip. Neighborhood after neighborhood in Baghdad over the next seven, eight months began. You began seeing the insurgents and their supporters come in from the cold. This movement became known as the Sons of Iraq. At first, each neighborhood had, had its own name, uh, and then they decided to organize this uh, into a greater Baghdad movement called Sons of Iraq. Then it went south of Baghdad to the so-called Triangle of Death. They signed up more people there, 100,000 in all. Now, that's larger than any estimate of the insurgent uh, mass that was ever uh, reached. So you have an idea that this was really the bulk of the Sunni insurgency that had come in from the cold through this effort. The outreach to those who were willing to come in, the refined, uh, more precise targeting. There were also a lot of other tactics, like the walls were put up. And this was very controversial, but I have to tell you, walling in the markets, I am convinced, hundreds of people from getting killed because in the spring of 07 uh, and, and earlier, there were, there were just massive casualties from these car bombs that were being set off in the markets. Uh, and similarly, walling in the neighborhoods like Amaria and Adamia bottled up those car uh, bomb factories uh, so that everything and everyone had to pass through a checkpoint. 
also x-ray machines put on the bridges. Uh, one of the principal bridges in Baghdad had been blown. It was a very dramatic uh, sign of these uh, insurgents' growing strength. And I have to say, we, we, if from this um, talk that I'm giving. Uh, as, as you know, war is hell. Well, these individuals uh, through the spring and summer of 07 really did go through hell. Um, Bradley vehicles were blown up by the bombs. They were so powerful. Uh, all of the men inside uh, generally burned to death. There was just horrific violence going on. So I ask you to compare that moment with where we are today, lowest violence this year than any year since the uh, war began. Um, is it over? No, it's not over. The way I characterize it is as still in a ceasefire situation. I do not believe that al-Qaeda in Iraq will get a foothold again. They still have... Um, some safe haven up in Mosul. But that's largely because, in my view, the uh, Sunni Iraqi population is waiting to see if Maliki will, in fact, incorporate them into the political, economic, and security life of the nation. There were elections in January at the provincial level. Um, the, uh, the Sunnis participated. Uh, secular parties participated. They gained a lot of representation. I expect the same thing to happen next January in the national parliamentary elections if they adopt the key electoral uh, reform that they need to, which is open list, open list elections, and that will prevent party bosses uh, from selecting leaders, and it will, I think, ensure that the Islamist parties, the Shia Islamist parties in particular, assume their rightful place as one among many groups that represent Iraqis. I'm not saying that there isn't a source of support for Islamist parties in Iraq, but it's a far more cosmopolitan and secular place uh, than I think many Americans have been, been led to. The other fallacy that I want to uh, point out is Baghdad and the other uh, cities of Iraq have not been cleansed. There is not a balkanized, all Sunnis live here and all Shia live here. Mansour, West Baghdad is still a mixed neighborhood. Iraq is a mosaic. It is true that many Iraqis have been pushed out and there are many refugees, both internally and expats. Um, and those people do need to be given a chance to come home. But there are far more Sunnis that are still living intermixed with Shia. And that is that is the way they've lived uh, for decades. I mean, that's the way they would prefer to live. Um, and, and many of them have chastised me for a couple of made-in-America ideas, the partitioning of Iraq. I have yet to meet an Arab Iraqi who wants that as a solution. Uh, and they, they chastise us for quickly running to the, we want to identify them. Are you Shia? Are you Sunni? And a lot of them say, look, my cousin is Sunni. I'm Shia. We're married. Don't, you know, my neighbors, I don't even know what my neighbors are. You know, this, this is really, uh, I think, I'd like to give you kind of an antidote to the way we've been thinking about Iraq over these past years. Um, in addition to that Shia-Sunni divide, the Kurd, the Kurd-Arab divide is one that is coming to the fore now and really must be dealt with. Um, I, I said Iraqis were part of this, uh, part of this solution, part of this dramatic turnaround, and I want to call out one particular Iraqi. It's quite ironic, in my view, that the, the greatest statesman of Iraq is a Kurd. Deputy Prime Minister Barham Saleh 
has done more to broker these deals, uh, to get money to Sunni provinces, uh, to forge a compromise over the provincial powers law, which is one of the many pieces of the debate between that still have to be resolved. Um, he is tireless, and he's also risked, uh, he has lost some standing among some of the more uh, parochial Kurds because he's been willing to fight for the deals that will keep Iraq together. And the logic goes as follows. If Kurds were to form their own state, they will invite certain war with Turkey. And we have let them know we, the U.S., have let them know which side of that conflict we'd be on. We would be on Turkey's side. So for better or worse, their fate for now rests with the success of Arab Iraq and of Iraq holding together. Even the Kurds where they're trying to develop the oil in their area, the pipeline is a national infrastructure. They have to go through the rest of Iraq's um, in pipeline to get their oil out. Uh, so uh, this is the basis on which Barham Sali and President Talibani, he's also a far-sighted uh, Kurdish leader, uh, they have, uh, when push comes to shove, put Kurdish interests second. Now there's a very pressing problem with Kirkuk. The status of Kirkuk must be resolved um, the Kurds would like it to be part of Kurdistan, and that is a, a real formula for conflict. Um, what needs to happen in the short term is for Kirkuk to have a special status that will allow Kurd, Turkmen, and Arab to live there together. Uh, and to me, it would be the height of injustice to um, follow the Saddam-era resettlement policy with a Kurdish resettlement policy whereby they push out the Arabs from that city. Uh, we can't expect the Iraqis to get to these solutions on their own. Right now, the solution for Kirkuk has been placed in the hands of the UN envoy, Stefan de Mistura, who's a very capable uh, diplomat, but the U.S. has to become much more active in pressing for these diplomatic and political solutions. And I'll, I'll leave you with the, the, um, the how-to of this. We have a lot of leverage still over the Iraqi government. They need us in many ways. I actually enumerate all the points of leverage in, my, in Chapter 15 of my book. Most simply, they still need our so-called combat enablers, air, intelligence, medevac, and so forth, to provide the security. Um, they ultimately need us and want us as a bulwark against Iran, which will continue to meddle. Um, there have been actions taken against the, the armed uh, groups that they are backing, but uh, that is a policy of Iran, and they are going to continue to arm and train those groups. Uh, so we have many levers at our disposal, and the end game in Iraq if we want security, a stability in that part of the world, we have to start with internal stability in Iraq because the Arab states around Iraq will be, uh, as long as the Maliki government does not incorporate the Arab Iraqis, the Sunni Iraqis, into the uh, life of that country, they will not be willing to embrace Maliki, and that will push the Shia government into the arms of Iran. And that only spells an unsettled, destabilized region for as far out as I can see. I'm going to stop now. I hope I haven't drowned you in my passion for Iraq, but I care very much how this goes, and I'm open to any kind of question you'd like to ask. Thank you. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.com.
www.lakeshore.org.